We're continuing this morning our series in Leviticus to live in the presence of God, but we're actually going to do that this morning by turning to the book of Hebrews. So turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 8. We are going to uh, kind of bounce around to a number of different passages in Hebrews this morning, and here's the purpose, here's why we're doing that. We've landed in the middle of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16, talking about the Day of Atonement. And last week, we walked through the ritual itself and what it signifies, and we kind of pointed to where that leads us in terms of leading us to Jesus. This week, what I want to do is to answer the question, what does the atonement accomplish? What does the atonement accomplish? Now, there's a lot of things that we could say in answer to that question. There's kind of the legal end of things, the justification, and and we talked about some of those things. We could even go long-term and say, what's the end goal? And it is the glory of God. God's glory is the end goal of everything that he does. And Hebrews even actually tells us that too, because it says right in the beginning, Hebrews 1 and verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the display of God's glory. So what Jesus does in the atonement displays God's glory. You remember when Moses asked God if he could see God's glory, what did God respond with? Well, God passed by him, and yes, there was a physical manifestation of his glory, but really the answer that God gave was to tell Moses who he was, his character, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, steadfast in loving kindness. And so when Jesus acts, particularly in his death and resurrection, it's a display of God's glory. That's one result of the atonement. But what I want to focus in on this morning is the results of the atonement on a personal level for you. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, what difference does the atonement make in your life? Is it just something that happened 2,000 years ago Or does it have an ongoing effect in your life? And that's what I'd like us to focus in on this morning. And we're going to do that from the book of Hebrews. So if you're in Hebrews chapter 8, look with me at verse 5. This is talking about the priests and the rituals that they carry out in the tabernacle and the temple. Verse 5 says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and shadow. Everything that we've been looking at in Leviticus in terms of how the tabernacle functions is a copy and a shadow. It's not the real thing. Think about a shadow. If we were to walk outside and the sun's shining, you can, which oddly enough at this time of year it is here in Ohio, you could walk out this morning and see the sun shining and there's your shadow on the ground. For your shadow to be there, you have to be there. The real thing has to be there for the shadow to exist. So the existence of the shadow points to the existence of something else. In the same way, the tabernacle, the temple, they're a copy and a shadow, and they point to the existence of something else that's more real, more significant. And what they point to is Jesus and his work of atonement. And so that's what 
we want to be focusing in on. And the reason that we go to the book of Hebrews is this. The author to Hebrews is writing to people who are being tempted, though they have become Christians, they're being tempted to go back into the Jewish rituals, to go back to the temple worship. And the author to Hebrews is saying, no, don't do that. Jesus is better. If you had to sum up the whole message of Hebrews in three words, that's it. Jesus is better. And so the author to Hebrews is going back and and showing you, here's what the Old Testament rituals were doing, and here's how Jesus fulfills it. Here's how Jesus is better. Here's why there's no reason to go back. You have the better thing. You have the real thing now because you have Jesus. We've seen, as far as just kind of setting the stage here, the background, as we talked about the Day of Atonement, you remember what we've seen so far in the book of Leviticus. We saw the instructions for how the sacrifices were to happen, instructions for the priests. When we got to Leviticus 9, the worship began in the tabernacle. The sacrifices were offered and the fire of the Lord came out and consumed them. The people respond in reverence and awe and everything is the way it's supposed to be. And then chapter 10 comes along. And Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire in. And so there's something unclean. There's something that's not in alignment with God's commands. And they bring it in. And God responds again by coming out in fire. But this time it's not for the sacrifice. This time he consumes Nadab and Abihu themselves. And so we have the problem, first of all, that the tabernacle has been defiled by sin Nadab and Abihu brought something unclean in. They disobeyed God's commands. And there's now dead bodies. And so we have the defilement of death in the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle needs to be cleansed. And we need to learn how can we come into God's presence in a way that doesn't bring death? How do we come into God's presence in a way that he will accept us? And the answer to that question of chapter 10 comes in chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. In between there is instructions about clean and unclean. But the ritual of Leviticus 16 tells us how God atones for sin. And so last week as we looked at Leviticus 16, we saw the high priest with all of his washings and clothes changings and the concern for cleanness that is there. We saw how he brings offerings, first for his own sin, then for the sins of the people. We saw the blood sprinkled, beginning with the Holy of Holies and working its way out from there. And it's God who does the cleansing. And we saw that central ritual of the two goats that are brought on the Day of Atonement. The one goat who has the sins of the people symbolically placed on it, and it carries those sins away out into the wilderness. And the other goat who is sacrificed, and the blood of that goat is brought in to cleanse the Holy of Holies and the holy place and the altar in the courtyard. And so we learned that for man to receive atonement for his sin, his sins must be taken away, and there must be a blood sacrifice that cleanses both the place that's defiled of sin and the sinners themselves. And together, those two goats picture atonement. We gave a definition of atonement last week. We said that that atonement is to appease the wrath of an offended party by a gift that rectifies an injustice done in order to restore a broken relationship. 
Now, to set the stage a little bit more in the book of Hebrews, there's a couple of passages I want us to just kind of skim briefly before we dig in and see three particular results of the atonement in our lives. So three passages just really briefly that we'll start with. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. And look at verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, propitiation is atonement. It's turning aside the wrath of God. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us that when Jesus, as the high priest, makes the offering, he's making the offering of himself, and his blood is a propitiation, an atonement that turns aside God's wrath. Flip over to chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. Just continuing to set the stage here. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So there's your idea of you have the earthly tent, but Jesus enters into the heavenly tent, the real thing, okay? The earthly one's the copy or the shadow. And he enters, verse 12, not by means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, Jesus doesn't offer the blood of goats like the Old Testament ritual. He offers his own blood. And the point here is, how much more will the blood of Christ do the sanctifying that's necessary, the cleansing that's necessary? See, the atonement, the gift that someone brings to make up for the offense has to match the value of the offense. What's the value of the offense in terms of our sin against God? Well, we've sinned against God's majesty and glory and holiness, and his majesty is infinite. His glory is infinite. His holiness is infinite. So the, the, the sin that we've committed is of infinite value in the wrong direction. It's, it's infinitely damaging. And so the gift that we bring in order to atone for our sins needs to be of infinite value. Which we don't have. We don't have anything that could ever have infinite value in, to, to offer to God. The blood of goats certainly is not of infinite value. But the blood of Christ is, because he is God himself. That's why it's the only sacrifice that could ever take care of our sin. You're in chapter 9, look over at chapter 10. 
and the first four verses. Chapter 10, 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple had to be repeated over and over and over. The sacrifices were daily sacrifices. The Day of Atonement came around every year, year after year after year. Why the repetition? Because those sacrifices were only a shadow. I can remember as a kid thinking that in the Old Testament, people were saved by making sacrifices, and in the New Testament, we're saved by faith in Jesus. Wrong idea. In the Old Testament, they offered those sacrifices, but their faith was in what the sacrifices were pointing to. Their faith was in what God would do, and what God would do was to send his son, Jesus, as the ultimate sacrifice, the one that would never need to be repeated because it was of infinite value. Well, once our sins are atoned for, then we can have peace with God. And that, that's really the first benefit that I want us to take a look at this morning is that Jesus opens the way to God. We touched on this last week, but I want to talk about it a little bit more this week. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So, the, the inner place behind the curtain is talking about that curtain, the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And our hope has gone in there. Jesus has gone in as a forerunner. Now the fact that he's a forerunner means that he's the first and there's more to come. That's us. We get to go into God's presence because of what Jesus has done. Think of the Old Testament examples of separation that comes from sin. Adam and Eve sin. What happens? They're exiled out of the garden, away from God's presence. Even when, when the people come out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, God gives the warning. He says, tell the people, don't touch the mountain lest they die. There's a separation. God is on the mountain. The people can't touch the mountain. The Holy of Holies, where God's presence would be. People are not allowed to come in there. <coughs> There's a separation that comes because of our sinfulness. But when our sins are atoned for, then we are brought back into alignment with God. We are, we are made at peace with Him. We are made at one. At one, atone. That's what the word atonement means. It's kind of a made-up English word that just means at-oneness. So think about how peace with God leads to access to his presence. 
Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Peace leads to access. Or Ephesians chapter 2, 17 and 18. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Peace leads to access. How is it that we could come into the presence of God and not end up like Nadab and Abihu? It's because of what Jesus has done. So last week we talked about those two goats and we talked about goat geography. Understanding when those two goats are there at the entrance of the tabernacle, in the one direction you have the source of life and in the other direction you have death out in the wilderness. In one direction you have the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. In the other direction you have the wilderness away from God's presence. And the scapegoat carries Israel's sins into the wilderness and the sacrificed goat allows the high priest to come into God's presence as our representative. Sin separates you from God. Blood will be necessary to bring you back into God's presence. And so Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 tells us, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner. Jesus has opened the way for us to come to God. Now, building on that, there's two more things that I want us to see that are results of the atonement in our lives today. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is our intercessor. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 25. It's speaking about the idea that Jesus is permanently the priest, whereas other priests came and went. And it says, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If the atonement accomplished our reconciliation to God, we have peace, we have access, what is Jesus doing now? He's ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. What is he doing? He's interceding for us right now. Dane Ortland writes that intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Let me say that again. It's really important for us to understand. Intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Jesus is right now making the case for us before God. He points to the atonement that he accomplished to demonstrate that we now have standing to be in God's presence. And don't get the wrong idea. Don't picture Jesus in heaven kind of begging God the Father, you know, wringing his hands and saying, couldn't you please let them in? Like as if he's trying to convince the Father to do something the Father really doesn't want to do. Jesus isn't convincing him to forgive our sins. This was the plan agreed on by the Father and the Son in eternity past. They both want this. When Jesus asks, he asks with authority. 
because he's accomplished what the Father and he determined that he should do. They're happy to do this. Think about Psalm 2. The psalm that begins, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? And it goes on to talk about how God will make the Son victorious over the entire creation. And the nations are given to him. But here's what it says. It says, this is God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God has installed the ruler that he wants to be ruling. Okay, that's Jesus. That happens in the resurrection and ascension where Jesus is now at the right hand of God the Father. He's seated there ruling and reigning. Okay? And then God says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. When you get to the New Testament, you see that it's the resurrection that declares the son of God that declares Jesus to be the Son of God with power. So in Psalm 2, when God says, when he makes the declaration, you are my son, the fulfillment of that is the resurrection. The resurrection is when God makes that statement, you are my son. And after that, verse 8, okay, after atonement has been achieved, in verse 8 of Psalm 2, The Father says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God tells Jesus to ask for what he has obtained through his atonement. This is all part of their plan. Jesus is not asking for something that he's got to convince the Father to give him. He's asking for something that they both agreed on and the father is delighted to do this. The father says, you've achieved this now. Ask of me. I'll give it. And the same applies right now as Jesus intercedes for you. Sometimes we wonder how God views us. We we say, okay, I can look back. I see the crucifixion. I see what Jesus did in his death on the cross and I know that he loves me, but does he like me? Does Am I a bother? Does God just have to put up with me? The atonement demonstrated Christ's great love toward us. That's all over scripture. We see that, that, that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that atonement is a demonstration of his love. But realize, Christ's heart does not change. His love does not grow cold. He doesn't drift into apathy. Right now, his heart in heaven toward you is the same as when you cross. His love for you, the same love, the same intensity of love that drove him to the cross is right now being exercised in heaven as he intercedes for you. He loves you. And he's interceding for you. Romans 8, Paul goes through this great celebration of God's love. But listen to what he says about Christ's intercession. And kind of brings that all to a climax. Listen to what what Jesus' heart is, according to what Paul says. He says, it is God who justifies... 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That love of Christ is the thread that runs through all of that. The death, the resurrection, the intercession. You can't be separated from his love because he's right now interceding for you. And so Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We all have this tendency to fall into thinking that we need to contribute something toward our salvation. But Jesus saves to the uttermost, completely. To simplify this point a little bit, if you are a child of God, if you have faith in Jesus, Jesus is right now, as we sit here, praying for you. In his atonement, he gains us access to God. And moment by moment, he maintains that access by interceding for us in God's presence. The last thing that I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4. Verses 14 through 16. Last three verses of the chapter. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The fact that we have a high priest who has himself been tempted by sin and who has atoned for our sins should be a great encouragement to us. He's able to sympathize with us because he is a man. At the same time, though he was tempted, he's without sin. Now we have a tendency, since we can't fully understand how it is that Jesus went through temptation, we have a tendency to kind of think, well, yeah, but he was never tempted like to the point of giving in to temptation like we are. So his temptation doesn't really you know, match up with what we've experienced. C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said, if you picture temptation as facing a strong wind that's blowing against you, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And all of us at some point give up on fighting against the wind and we lay down to get out of the wind. Jesus never did that. The wind against him continued to get stronger and stronger, stronger than what any of us have ever faced, and he never gave in to it. He has experienced temptation 
like we have. And because that's true, you and I are called on to do two things in response. In verse 14, hold fast our confession. In verse 16, draw near with confidence. What does it mean, hold fast our confession? Well, you're not far away. Look back at the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2. Verse 17. Okay, we read this already once, but I want to read this and then two more verses. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. When you're tempted to sin, look to Jesus. He's the high priest of our confession. He was tempted like you. Notice what it says in verse 18. Jesus is able to help because he himself has suffered when tempted. It's not just that he was tempted. He suffered when he was tempted. Think of it this way. Thomas Goodwin points this out. He's a Puritan writer. He wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners on Earth. And as he's talking about this, he, he, he draws out the point that in eternity past, as God the Father and God the Son come together on this plan of what's going to happen, if we can kind of talk about it that way, Jesus is going to become a man. And if we think about who Jesus is right now, Jesus has his resurrection body. He has a glorified human body. His body is no longer subject to the weaknesses of being a man here on earth. It's still a human body, but it's glorified. It's different than what we have. But notice the order of what Jesus experiences. He doesn't go directly to a glorified human body. He first takes on a body like ours. He experiences life as we did before he's glorified. So in his glorified body, in heaven, as he's interceding for you, he knows what it's like to be where you are because he's experienced it. He was a man, a human man without a glorified body, subject to all of the weaknesses of the flesh, like we are, yet without sin. And so he can understand. This one whose heart is for you, who's in heaven right now interceding, praying for you, is able to help you. And so we are told, draw near with confidence. Now, Nadab and Abihu drew near, but they did it in the wrong way. They came with uncleanness. Sinful man can't enter the presence of a holy God. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies every year, but he had to go through this entire ritual of the Day of Atonement that demonstrated for us just how one has to come into the presence of God. On the cross, in his crucifixion, Jesus enters into the presence of God. In reality, not in the tent, not in the temple, but in reality, he enters into the presence of God and makes atonement. He's able to do that because he's perfectly holy and righteous, and he offers his own blood to God. And now, 
we are invited into his presence. We're invited to draw near with confidence. God wants us to come. And we don't come pretending that somehow on our own merits we belong there. Notice why we are supposed to come. We come to find mercy and grace and help. That means we come needy. We don't come because we've got it all together. Because even because God's fixed everything for us, we come because we need the help. We can come because of what Jesus has done, but we come as weak and needy. And we come for help in time of need. And we are able to find that help in time of need because Jesus, our high priest, who has opened the access for us and who is there interceding for us, is a sympathetic high priest. He knows what we are going through. So the atonement of Jesus reconciles us to God. It turns aside God's wrath. It offers a gift, an acceptable gift, because that gift has a value that matches the offense that we've committed against God's majesty and glory. The atonement gives us access to God's presence. The, the atonement is, is right now continuously being applied by the intercession of Jesus for us. And because of the atonement, we are invited to come into God's presence for mercy and grace and help in time of need. John Stott, as he writes about the atonement, says this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. And as Jesus does that, as he accomplishes that atonement, it grants us access to God's presence. And he ever lives, Scripture says, to make intercession for us. And he's a sympathetic high priest who wants to help us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the atonement that has been made on our behalf, but we're also thankful that it doesn't simply end with an event 2,000 years ago. But right now, the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is interceding for us. He loves us. I pray that you would help us to receive that truth deep into our hearts that we would believe it, that we would understand that you want us in your presence. You invite us to come in and not to come in once we've cleaned ourselves up, but to come in because we need mercy and grace and help. Thank you for your love for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.